welcome back. This is episode 180. 180, yep. I'm Ben Marshall, and co hosting, as always, is Tom Major. <laughs> I'm sorry, what, what was that? It's 180, episode 180, so we got a 180. Oh, because days I forgot darts was a thing. Yeah, well, so did we all, but then everyone started caring about it like two weeks ago for some reason. Did they? Yeah, because of this Luke Littler character, right? Little, <laughs> I have no idea. This what young man. About. You don't know <laughs> no what this is about. You quite, this has completely passed you by. I mean, I suppose two weeks ago I wasn't in the country, so that probably oh, didn't help well. too. I don't think darts exists as a sport outside of the UK. I was actually thinking about this. I wouldn't have thought it would have made it to American news. Do you have American darts players? I have no darts idea. Darts seems... Darts, darts seems isn't like, very high on my agenda, no matter where I am. Uh, well, so anyway, the reason it was big was because there's this guy, he's called Luke Littler. He's English. He was in the final, the big final of the darts, the world championships, which okay. is... They call it a world championship, but like I say, I feel like it's more like a sort of UK pub championship. <laughs> but there you go. He was very famous and he, he popularised the sport over here. Everyone was banging on about it. It's mental that you didn't hear about that. But yeah, we're on episode 180. We're not talking about darts. We're talking about chameleons. That's just as well, because I know nothing about darts and only marginally no, I, more about chameleons. Haven't even heard of Luke Littler, mate, literally. That is worth remembering <laughs> for future sort of like quiz games and pub quizzes. But yeah, so we're talking about chameleons. Little chameleons. We've got, yeah, small chameleons, dwarf chameleons, as they're sort of formally known. Um, let's introduce the paper. It's by Petford, Herald, Alexander and Tolly. Differences between urban and natural populations of dwarf chameleons. A case of urban warfare published in Urban Ecosystems. And um, yeah, we're talking about Bradipodi- Bradipodian Damaranum, otherwise known as the Nisna chameleon, with a silent K, Nisna chameleon. Um, which is the common name. You ever seen one of these bad boys in the flesh, Ben? I don't think I have, you know. No? Yes, yeah, unless you've been to South Africa. People do keep them. I've seen some captive ones. One of my old supervisors from Exeter had some as pets, and they are seriously cool little chameleons. They have these kind of huge scales on their heads and on their flanks that make them look a bit sort of armoured. When, when you say huge, it's huge relative to their face, right? As opposed to yes. actually huge. It's not like a shield. Yeah, it's like you know, a regular small... chameleon scale. Yeah, these chameleons grow to like 20 centimetres total length. So you can imagine it's a proportionately sized but large scales on their sort of 20 faces. centimetres? Yes. Total. Including the tail, I'm pretty sure that is. Because when I saw them, they're pretty small. But yeah, they're cool because they're sometimes blue. They have these like yellow patches on the flanks and the body is bright green. They're really beautiful. Of course, generally the males... They're chameleons, not always, but the males are more vibrant in coloration. Some of them will just be dull brown, you know, within some populations. They're highly variable, being chameleons. And yeah, one of the cool things about this species is that they're found in lots of different populations, some of which are more foresty and wild, and some are urban. And that kind of was the sort of inspiration for this study. Was there a you know, are urban chameleons different from natural chameleons in some way we could measure? And if they are, why might that be? And the authors kind of expected that there would be differences in the form between urban and native sort of natural. They're all native, but urban and natural chameleons from sort of wilder areas. 
they thought that could have resulted from selection in urban areas being harsher. You know, this idea that in urban areas, life is more difficult. It always makes me think of urban foxes in the UK. You know, you see them and they just look super sort of ratty and small. Yeah. yeah. And apparently life is harder. Yes. And I think we've talked about this with other species at different points too. You have this like, oh yeah, you can survive, but at what cost? Exactly. And then we always think about this idea that like, you got to be careful with it, especially if you're a conservationist, because finding an animal in a place doesn't mean it's having a good time. It could exactly, be like, yeah. it could be on its way out or like just narrowly clinging on by some very fine margin. You're like, yeah, sweet. Look at this animal's habitat. It's loving it there. <laughs> let's, re- let's recreate this. And the ones you introduce are just like <laughs> living in hell. But yeah, so. Um, <laughs> Look at them drive around in the filth. They're loving it. Exactly. So yeah, these chameleons, they're found in urban environments. They basically had two study sites for this, both in South Africa, both on the South Coast, one in a sort of nice wooded area. And the other was in a place called George, I believe. And uh, yeah, you look at the pictures and, you know, one of the locations is like a sort of beautiful, dense woodland with nice understory, lots of leaves, very busy environment. And then the other side is sort of parks or... um sort of tree lines next to roads and you can imagine that those are quite different environments if they're if you're a chameleon and um, they kind of expected to see chameleons in the urban environment to have uh, less ornamentation potentially because you know these features on chameleons which are ornamental are generally you know like crests and casks that kind of stuff they use them to communicate with other chameleons but there's this idea that in urban environments predators might be stronger and also they might encounter predators more often because there are fewer places to hide so there's this idea that maybe the chameleons will get a bit less jazzy as a result and similarly they wanted to test the whether or not they actually were under more pressure from you know predators or battles with other chameleons and so they measured the rate of injuries between these two populations that's the sort of counterpoint, isn't it? That there's this idea that if you're being forced into a more concentrated area in urban populations, you might actually need to have a greater need for these ornamentations as a means of communicating and competing with other fellow chameleons, right? So there is potentially this trade-off, this competition between uh, conspicuousness and signalling and therefore fight avoidance, right? These are ones that all square up to each other, size each other up based on ornamentation as a means to avoid physical confrontation, potentially. Yeah, that's definitely the case with other species. I remember we did that paper on the veiled chameleons. They can pretty much sort out virtually all conflict just by looking at each other. They just tell, okay, let me get a look at this guy. Oh, okay. <laughs> all right, big guy, see you later. Or it's exactly. like the opposite's true and they're like, wow, I'm, I, this I person win. is weak. I, get out of I my way. clearly crush. And the other one's having the opposite thought. So yeah, usually nine times out of ten, they don't have to battle, which is great. But obviously, if you have a selection pressure, which is meaning that your ornamentation has to be reduced for some other reason, like you're trying to hide from predators, then that might mean that you end up fighting more. But we will get into that. But the first thing they wanted to do, they actually checked to see whether or not there was a measurable difference in the vegetation structure between the urban and non-urban environments. And sure enough, there was. There were fewer density of trees uh, or fewer density of like foliage in the urban area. So less habitat for the chameleons. And then after that, it was on to the uh, injury rates to see if there was a difference between urban and non-urban individuals um, to see if their prediction of more injuries was true. And it was true, wasn't it? There were more more injuries on the urban chameleons than on their sort of forested counterparts. Yes, there was a higher likelihood 
for a sampled chameleon to be injured as well as them to have more injuries. However, there wasn't... Basically, overall, yeah, it looked like more injuries. There was this one sort of instance that females were not more likely to be injured. Males were more likely to be injured. Overall, chameleons were more likely to have more injuries. Yeah, I thought that was quite telling because of the male thing. Like, the fact that it's much more geared towards the males makes it seem like either it's because the a lot of the injuries are coming from competition between individual chameleons you know the males yep. are more more likely to fight and come to blows and injure each other or it could be that there's something to do with the life history of a chameleon male that's different from a female like perhaps you know i think could be. in papers we've looked at in the past males can roam more i feel like that's a pretty common tendency for uh, for species like this where there is male male competition yeah they got to get about they got to find the territory they got to find the mates But yeah, so the other prediction, so yeah, we had males having more injuries than females and urban chameleons having more injuries than non-forested chameleons. And the other prediction was that the chameleons would kind of become less jazzy, you know, uh, on their terms, show less ornamentation. So ornamentation measured things that they sort of have on chameleons that they consider to be ornamentation include cask height which is like the crest at the back of the head so the height of that cask the spur which is like the sort of if you imagine the head of a chameleon okay so imagine a triceratops right the spur would be like the tippity top of the crest where it like rises up yeah yeah it's like a little curved additional spur on it and you also have the gula length which is the length of the uh, little spikes underneath the chin and also the gula area which is the kind of area that the largest one of those spikes covers and all of these are measures of basically jazziness and things which could be used in communication you know they're not necessarily functional things that the chameleon's using in its day-to-day life except for to communicate with its enemies or its friends potentially and sure enough they found that the chameleons in the urban environment were less conspicuous and had less ornamentation and they were therefore less showy. But it has also changed them in another way too. So they're not only less showy, but they also have wider heads and stronger bite forces. And that is only true of the males and not the females. And that kind of speaks to this increase in competition as well. You know, if these are chameleons which are coming into contact with other males and they're having to fight more often, it could be that they need this stronger bite force caused by uh, sort of wider and larger Wider yeah. heads and stronger bites. There was a sort of added aspect to it, wasn't it? That the cast height was changing in sort of direct relation to that bite force. So it looked like in urban populations, the cast height was a more uh, honest signal than would be expected in potentially other, other populations, other, other groups. So it could be that they're evolving this like alternate. So cast height is like an alternate measure of ornamentation that the urban ones can understand perhaps or are learning to understand wait a second i thought they used cask height as a proxy for size to control yeah, the body it's, size it's, sorry i've completely misread I've, I, we reasoned that the reduced ornamentation would not be an honest signal for bite force and fighting performance ah, <laughs> it's that's the opposite, good. good check which makes good far check, more sense check. It's, it's being yeah, undermined yeah. by the urban environment and the need to be less conspicuous therefore there's a disconnect between the bite force and this signal, which would explain them getting into more fights and potentially more injuries if they can't use that ornamentation as a signal. And then you're getting into fights with chameleons with particularly strong bite forces that are going to do you mischief. 
Yep, yep, yep. I just think it's really cool because it suggests that these chameleons have some kind of, you know, ability to adapt and change to their urban environments. You know, there is, of course, the chance that these like baseline populations in urban environments had these characteristics and now they're like isolated populations that are kind of... Maybe, you know. yeah. But the fact that they can sort of suggest a link which benefits them mean, means that seems less likely. Yeah, and it's only 200 years, these sort of urban areas. Because we've got George established in 1811 and we've got, how did you pronounce it? Nisna? Nisna, Nisna yeah, the K is silent. In 1825. So 200 years of like proper township stuff going on. I don't yeah. know how many chameleon generations that would encompass. 200 years, that's probably like, that's probably like 100 generations of chameleons I would have thought. Or like 80 maybe. Quite a few, certainly enough to leave an imprint, right? Yeah, maybe I've just been thinking too much about introduced species because I think if these isolated populations had been introduced from like locally from a forest ages ago or something, then maybe they would have like a big bottleneck that could explain these variations. Right. Like if you had a specific sort of subset that were introduced and then yep. that's kind of been... Founder effect sort of stuff. Yeah, but mm -hmm. I think actually that's probably not the case for these because they're native populations that are yep. just have become isolated naturally that's maybe not so likely one thing certainly struck me that there was a gradient from urban to forest too so there's surely a bit of back and forth gene flow yeah one other thing i wanted to talk about that they mentioned which could explain the increase in bite force that isn't chameleons competing with each other is harder bugs so the harder your food the stronger the bite force required to crunch it. And urban environments are known for having like fewer numbers of different species. So there's going to be less different species. You know, there's urban assemblages of animals tend to have fewer components, but like the ones there are there, the ones that are there are kind of more heavily represented to sort of fill in the gaps. Yes. And it could be that being as they're now in an urban environment, there's some kind of limitation on the food. They don't have access to the same resources as the ones in the forested environments do. Like, you know, you could imagine that, I don't know, only woodlice are surviving in these urban environments, or there's like a massive preponderance of woodlice because they're adapted to the urban environments and chameleons are preying on those more than other bugs. And so then they need to have a stronger bite force as a result. Yeah, all the soft bugs remained in the forest. Only the it hard bugs true. remain in the, in the urban areas because they have to be extra tough. <laughs> yeah what would be the crunchiest bug do you think crunchiest bug it's got to be some form of beetle right yeah big Beatles strong be. carapace like rhino beetle rhino beetle yeah i mean if we're gonna go if we're gonna sort of go invertebrates more broadly obviously a snail you don't get much more crunchy than that they're not really bugs are they i've never heard of a chameleon eating a snail i'm not i'm not saying it doesn't happen but yeah Chameleon eating a snail. Who knows? Yeah, but then I think we've probably done this paper justice, really. This, uh, the Nisna chameleon, Bradipodium dameranum, adapting, apparently, to its new urban environment. Hopefully this means that there can be chameleons in the bushes for a long, long time in Southern Africa. I'd like to think that I could go to South Africa and see one of these things in a bush at a park. That would be a very joyous day. They would be the less showy of them, though. If you wanted to, to see a showy one, you'd have to go into the forest, wouldn't you? I'll be in the forest as well, but it would just be nice to know that they were there. It would. Right, so we've got one... We're kind of going from one showy lizard to another, really, in many ways. Let's move on to our Species of the Bi Week.
Okay, so this is a brand new species of dragon lizard that we have here from Southeast Asia. And this is a paper by Citavon. New lizard here. So the paper is entitled Hiding on Jagged Cast Pinnacles, a new microendemic genus and species of a limestone dwelling agamid lizard from Kamuan province, Laos. And this was published by Citavon Brackles, Zyasith, Maori, Idiatulina, Powankanant, Wang, Ngayan, and Poyakov. And this was published in Zoological Research last year, 2023. So pretty new species. So you used a segue from like showy to showy lizard. Mm, yeah, I would like maybe that isn't accurate. for you to explain your rationale and logic behind this. <laughs> I wasn't expecting to be called out quite so dramatically. All right. Well, I'll tell you what. <laughs> this lizard is showy in isolation. If you look at it on a white background, uh, I would you, argue there's if, if you it's got showy elements. <laughs> remove it from its natural habitat. Yeah. Where it's beautifully it evolved habitat. to be incredibly yeah. cryptic. Yeah. It becomes okay. showy. Mm-hmm. However, yeah. I will agree without argument that in its natural habitat, this animal probably actually is all the way at the opposite end of the showy spectrum. Virtually invisible in its natural habitat. Okay. Very difficult to spot. Logic explained. Yeah. <laughs> And we are in Laos, or Laos, and we're talking about this lizard with impressive camouflage capabilities. And so these are so-called dragon lizards. They've been known from Laos for many years. Um, they're part of the Agamidae family, and they do look... Do you think they look a bit dragony? I think that's fair to say. I think they look, they've got a little bit of a dragony face. Yes, definitely. Definitely, definitely. Stick some little wings on him. Perfect. Exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. And um, we are in a, a cast sandstone environment, right? It's cast as a as type of sandstone, limestone, cast limestone environment, which is you know these crazy spiky rocks. They're really beautiful. They're also apparently very difficult to walk on because they can tend to be quite sharp. But yeah, a university student took a photograph of these lizards like late in 2022, and there was a guide taking tourists there. They were doing zipline rides. Somebody spotted one scooting around on the rocks. Someone eventually caught it. And then some researchers went to the site, checked it out and caught another one. And they've sort of examined these two individuals and they've determined them to be a brand new species of lizard. And they've given it a beautiful name. So the name of the genus already existed uh, was Lao, Lao Dracon, which gives evidence to the fact that it's from Laos and Dracon derived from Greek dragon, meaning dragon. And they recommend the specific name. Oh, hang on a sec. I'm chatting absolute rubbish. That is a brand new genus. Lao Dracon genus novella. Oh, the genus is new too, is it? Yeah, yeah. It's only the oh. Dracon bit that's used past, past elsewhere. So Lao Dracon's a brand new genus. And also, yeah, you know, dragon, it means dragon or basilisk. And it's sister to the... Diploderma genus. And they've called it Laodracon castacola. Castacola meaning cast loving, right? Yeah, pretty much. Or inhabiting, yeah. Cast inhabiting. So, you know, we've got here Laodracon, the dragon from Laos, and Castacola, cast inhabiting. So the cast inhabiting dragon from Laos. (laughs) Which is pretty good. 
It's a 10 out of 10 name, easily 10 out of 10. You know, it has some differences from other closely related animals. But yeah, let's talk about what it looks like. I mean, you know, we've said it's jazzy and not jazzy, which is a bit confusing. It's mostly sort of a dark grey to black background colour. Quite a slender lizard with a long tail. It has this weird bulge in the tail, which is like actually a defining feature of the species. Not sure why that what that bulge's function is. It's quite low down if those are gonads. Is that a male? The holotype is a male, yeah. Okay, yeah. So it could just be that it's got some serious hemipenes. Maybe it's packing. Not sure. But um, yeah, on sort of on top of the black base coloration, you've got some like white striations. There's like some nice white around the head breaking up the eye. And so, yeah, it's just this sort of black to dark gray lizard with all these like nice white patterns on it. It looks really cool. And apparently it skitters around the cast environment, hiding from predators quite adeptly. From, uh, you know, from a saxicolous sort of lifestyle, we could say. Yeah. And apparently talking to local people, it's rare. They're, no one had ever seen it other than this sort of isolated outcrop on which it was officially observed. Whether or not there are more, you know, kind of will be determined. And yeah, there's a picture of one perched on a cast limestone rock and it just is like virtually invisible. Yeah. It's really hard for humans to discriminate on the black and white, on a black and white background. That is... A challenging spot. I wouldn't want to be a predator that relied on eating these. It would be a <laughs> taxing lifestyle. Apparently, they're likely to eat ants. So there must be a bunch of ants around. Ah, mimecophagus, huh? My God, look at that. Straight off the top of the head. Did you have that written down? No. You're an That's just one I remember. Me. You're an inspiration to me. Amazing. <laughs> cool. Well, yeah. Have you got anything else on the uh, this brand they're new about species? 10 centimeters SVL with another 10 centimeters of tail. So they're, I think, a sort of classic agamid lizard sort of size, shape, and demeanor, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Laos cast dragons. Really, yeah. What a name. Brilliant. Excellent. All right. Sweet. So, um, yeah. Have you got any other business for this week? No. No. No, I don't. No. no. I don't think I have either. No, just how cool this name is. I met up with some of my mates from school over uh, New Year's Eve. We described a species of snake, which they thought was cool. But then I told them what the name was <laughs> and they were devastated. They were like, Niangensis, what's that? And they were like, why isn't it called Major? <laughs> and I was just like, clearly you don't listen to the podcast or you'd realise that there's absolutely no way that would ever happen. Like, also, naming it after funny. yourself is a major faux pas. Exactly, a major faux pas. Some of them were also a little bit annoyed that I hadn't thought to name it after them. But again, I tried to explain how I feel about that. It fell on deaf ears, uh, but there you go. One of them actually claims to listen to the podcast. That was a lie. Uh, <laughs> it's all coming out. It's yeah, all it's coming all out. coming out. Anyway, yeah. Yeah, I haven't really got anything else to add other than to say it's great to be back. It's great to be back in the new year. Uh, I think workload, at least for me, is going to be way less crazy. So we should be back on the podcasting hype with a vengeance. Looking forward to it. And yeah. If you want to get in touch with us, you can. We are herphighlights at gmail.com. Get in touch if you've got a question or if you think you could correct us on something. We make mistakes. And otherwise, you can get in touch with us on social media. Thanks, as always, to our amazing patrons. Uh, It's fantastic. Best way to support the podcast. We still don't do ads. I think ads, we both think ads on podcasts just not what you want. Yeah, there are ads. It's not coming from us and we don't get any kickback from it. So Yeah. (laughs) Also, when podcasters read their own ads... Oh, you sold your soul to the dark side. Cannot abide it. (laughs) Disgusting. Please don't be doing that. Anyway, thank you for listening and we'll catch you in the next one. Yeah, thanks for listening.